Richard, introduce yourself. Hello, Richard Carrier. Uh, I have a PhD in ancient history from Columbia University, uh, and I'm a known writer in atheism, uh, philosophy, and ancient history uh, in many fields. And today, in particular, we're going to be talking about my work on the historicity of Jesus. So, in a nutshell, what is your work on the historicity of Jesus? How did you get started in that? What did, how did how did you come to where you are now? Oh yeah. Um, so there's tons of like crank and tinfoil hat and amateur treatments of the Jesus mythicism claim yeah. on the internet. And I was an, a staunch defender of historicity. I would read some of this stuff and say, no, this is conspiracy theory stuff. It's not really well informed. Um, definitely the consensus is that Jesus existed. We should stick with that until someone said I should read Earl Doherty's book, uh, The Jesus Puzzle. And they said, several people actually, whose opinions I respected said, no, no, this one's different. This one looks like a really good argument, and but we really can't tell because we don't have you know the chops, we don't have the field experience and, and training. Could you look at it and tell us, does this really hold up or not? And so I did, I looked at it and I had to, I was impressed. Uh, there was, it wasn't perfect, but it, um, it made a plausible case that I had not seen any defender of historicity answer uh, effectively. So that led me sort of like doubting, like, well, now I'm not so sure. Uh, I don't know, but I was just gonna leave it at that uh, and say, well, there's a challenge. No one's really met the challenge yet. So it's kind of in limbo, the decision or the, the question. Um, but in 2008, uh, when I got my PhD, uh, the economy collapsed at the same time. And so I didn't have, uh, there were freezes on hires for humanities majors. So the job market was dead basically. Uh, so I went to my fan base and I said, hey, look, if you can help me raise the $20,000 I need to pay down my remaining student debt, I'll apply my PhD to any subject you want. And they raised the money and unanimously they all said historicity of Jesus. And they didn't even specify what conclusion I would, would get. They just said, just do like a peer reviewed book on uh, the historicity of Jesus, whichever side you come down on, uh, we just want it to exist. Let's have this thing finally adjudicated and looked at. And so that resulted in a six-year uh, postdoc research project. Uh, I treated the money like a, a research grant, um, developed several books out of it. But the main one, the capstone, is On the Historicity of Jesus, which is the first book published under peer review by a respected biblical studies press, uh, arguing that Jesus didn't exist. Uh, and the first book even addressing the question pro or con, uh, a book dedicated to addressing the question pro or con, in almost 100 years. It had just been assumed uh, most Jesus writing, most history uh, work today is just assumes the historicity of Jesus and then tries to reconstruct or work out what the truth of Jesus is behind all of the legends and stuff. Why? Uh, but I was the first one. What's that? Why Why is it just assumed? Take, talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, it's hard to say why it's just assumed because the, the reasons given don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, I just took it as the the whole study of Jesus, the whole field comes out of the faith tradition of Christianity, right? So uh, you have all of this, even the people, even secular scholars in biblical studies are usually coming out of seminaries or usually coming out of theology schools or uh, studied under Christian professors. So you have this, this long tradition that sort of pushes the narrative that of course Jesus existed, it's ridiculous to suggest he didn't. And, uh, and there are a lot of other things that they teach and just take for granted that they don't actually go back to the text and look and say, actually, you know what, this isn't in here. Uh, the thing, or, or the, what it says is different than what I thought or things like that. Um, it's similar to Moses. Uh, so uh, the same thing happened with Moses. Now in the seventies, Thomas Thompson challenged the historicity of Moses. There's a lot of pushback on that. Uh, but ultimately the evidence bore out, like it's, it's really not plausible that there was a historical Moses or a historical Abraham. These look like mythic narratives. There's no evidence to back them as historical. So the, the general consensus now, decades after that, 
is that they're either definitely myths or we we can't say one way or the other uh, whether these people existed or what's true about them. When so, you begin, yeah, go yeah, ahead. No, finish, yeah. When you begin entering into the arena of historicity or mythicism, what was the one thing that caught your attention that felt like something there needed to be addressed? What's the one thing that stood out to you? The the thing that I thought now the the the, the best evidence is the weird silence of Paul's letters. Yeah. And there's a variety of excuses to try and explain that away, but it's, it sounds a lot like Christian apologetics to try and explain it away. It is weird. But the thing that was necessary for me was uh, key as a historian was if you're going to say Jesus didn't exist, you need to have a plausible theory for how Christianity began and how it yeah. developed, right? That's key. If you're going to, and that's what I do in my book is I compare the standard mainstream Jesus was an ordinary guy, heavily mythologized later, versus this other alternative version of how things went. Uh, and Earl Doherty is the first one to come up with a plausible narrative that fit the context, that made sense in context, uh, didn't require conspiracy theories, didn't require any uh, wild speculation. Um, it made a lot of sense and it works. And so you can actually test uh, these two theories against the evidence and see which one performs better. Uh, and I think ultimately the Doherty thesis performs better. Uh, it explains more weirdness in the evidence and fits the background uh, situation, the religious and cultural and literary background situation of early Christianity better in my opinion. So in a nutshell, other than what you just said, how would you characterize that view? Yeah, uh, so the, this is the, the basic Doherty thesis, which I call minimal mythicism, is that Christianity actually began by having visions of an angelic being, uh, Jesus in this case, who's kind of like an anti-Satan. Uh, and he undergoes this cosmic drama of becoming incarnate and being killed to uh, release divine power and, and, and defeat Satan. Uh, but all of this goes takes place in the sky or in, in a mythic realm uh, above. Uh, and it's revealed through hidden messages and scriptures and through visions, either dreams or hallucinations or claimed dreams or hallucinations, where they communicated with this person. And very similar to the way Joseph Smith claims he spoke to the angel Moroni or Muhammad claims he spoke to the angel Gabriel. Uh, Christianity began that way. And then if you look at all the other savior cults, and savior cults were all the rage, and Christianity definitely looks like a Jewish version of this, this fad for savior <laughs> cults at the time. Uh, they all follow the same kind of similar model where they take this savior figure who's a cosmic being who undergoes some sort of cosmic drama and then put him on earth history with an ordinary biography and stuff um, with some miraculous things in it, just like we see for Jesus. And we don't have evidence that any of these other savior figures existed, and yet they're all given biographies, putting them interacting with historical actors in history. So uh, the question for us then is, well, why should we think Jesus is the exception? Why isn't this just one more example of the same phenomenon occurring? Right. Uh, and uh, so you have to go to the evidence. And of course, the sect that decided the preservation of all evidence was a historicist sect. They very much uh, set their uh, dogma on the existence of Jesus and opposed any version of Christianity that challenged that and destroyed documents or got rid of most of the stuff. So the, the evidence is highly compromised. We've lost a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence been meddled with, and not through conspiracies, just through the fact that this is the way documents got preserved and selected and altered by a variety of different people acting independently, but with the same goal. So hey, Richard, we're looking at it through this filter. What time frame are we looking at when the historicist yeah. views challenge the others? The historicist views appear to arise in the late first century. So this would have been a human one human lifetime later. Uh, after after the, the cult began. Uh, when we look at, like, the Jewish war is kind of pivotal here. So if you look, the Jewish war ended in 70. So when the Jews rebelled against Rome, and Rome came and, and crushed them and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the Jerusalem temple, that ended in 70 AD. 
when you look at all documents that we have that could plausibly be dated before 70 AD that discuss Christianity, which is only Christian documents, uh, you don't see a historical Jesus. It only looks like some sort of outer space revelatory Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you look at after 70, you start to see the gospels appear over the next about 50 year period. Uh, and that's when the gospels arise. And the gospels have, do not claim to be written by eyewitnesses, have no named eyewitness sources. Um, and we have no other sources that can corroborate anything that's in the gospels. They just seem to appear. And this is, like I said, a lifetime later. So this is a long time by ancient standards. So how, why did the Jews create Jesus then? Well, it depends on which Jesus you mean, right? So uh, if we start with uh, the Doherty thesis, let's assume it's true for the sake of argument. In that view, Jesus was viewed as essentially the ultimate archangel. And we actually have evidence that there was this, this figure in Jewish angelology at the time. Whether he was called Jesus or not can be debated, but definitely all the properties are there. The firstborn son of God, uh, the agent of God's agent of creation, uh, the wisdom of God, the, the icon of God, the, the image of God. He has all of these attributes and he's this pre-existent eternal being. And what the Christians came up with was this idea that this eternal being descended, became incarnate, and died so that in order to affect this ultimate atonement sacrifice that basically eliminated the need for the temple cult any further after that. Uh, because it's the one time it does it all. It's the super mojo, basically. So if, you, if you sacrifice a god uh, or you know God's son, uh, it has the power that lasts forever rather than having to be repeated every year. And in that sense, it reversed the Isaac story, right? In the Isaac story, God orders Isaac to uh, kill his son, or uh, orders Abraham to kill his son Isaac. Mm -hmm. He says, no, 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 okay, I'm going to stop you. You can use an animal. And as Hebrews 9 explains, the animal, is a, that's a weaker sacrifice. So it has to be repeated every year to atone for the sins of Israel. Jesus' story reverses that. It goes, okay, to get rid of the animals, we're going to go back to the firstborn son, and that blood will, will atone forever. It'll last forever. You only need to do it once. It doesn't have to be repeated every year. And so that seems to be the drama there. And it also reverses the fall of Satan, right? So Satan supposedly historically rebelled in heaven and descended to the upper air where he rules in sky castles and interferes with human life uh, below. Jesus is kind of reversing the fall of Satan and restoring order and power over the lower realms, essentially. So there's, there's this whole cosmic drama that makes complete sense politically. It makes sense uh, theologically in context. Um, and so whether they invented this and just pretended that this is what uh, they saw, or if they actually did have dreams that they were convinced they were talking to Jesus, telling him, telling them this had happened and telling them that it, it, the secret messages were in the scriptures all along confirming this, the movement very much is a pacifistic movement attempting to create a sort of utopian society within the corrupt imperial society that would cut out the middlemen, the corrupt middlemen of the temple cult. So it's very much this, it's a fringe countercultural Jewish sect it's creating this reason to not depend on the temple cult anymore. And to do that, they have this God sacrifice as part of their narrative that solves that problem theologically and politically. Uh, and uh, now let that run for decades and decades. And eventually he gets allegorized into a historical narrative, just like all the other savior gods uh, were. Uh, so it follows the same narrative of many other uh, religions. Um, and we just see uh, a more compressed, we just see the timeline more clearly because we have better documentation but it's still not anywhere near the kind of documentation we would need to have a smoking gun in this pro or con historicity. The, the evidence is very damaged, especially for the first century. Do you think the creators of the Jesus myth ever thought that this would become something absolutely mainstream in Judaism? 
Uh, in Judaism, probably not. Uh, it's hard to say for that. because so the original Jewish sect, right, of Christianity was Torah observant. Uh, you had to be a Jew. You couldn't you couldn't be a Gentile and be a Christian. You had to convert to Judaism, circumcise, follow dietary laws and all that. That original sect shrank and died out. It was very unsuccessful. Uh, the only sect that grew and actually became sort of popular and it was actually able to compete in the open marketplace of ideas with other savior cults was the Gentile version of the church, which Paul essentially invented. Paul came up with this idea that, you know, Jesus appeared to me and he says, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Well, now the entry cost was way low. Now you don't have to you don't have to cut off a piece of your penis. You don't have to follow dietary laws. You don't have to do all this stuff. So it was easier to be a Christian. And there was a lot of ascetic appreciation and interest in uh, Jewish life and Jewish morals and Jewish camaraderie. But a lot of people who wanted to convert didn't for these reasons. So now it became much easier. So you could join this, this, this new version of Ju Judaism and become this sort of more a hipper, newer uh, kind of savior cult. And so that, that's why it became as popular as other savior cults. And it was competing on a marketplace equally with all of them. It wasn't until uh, the government intervened and basically declared Christianity the top religion and started funneling money and power towards the church. That's the only time where it really sort of dominates society. And then eventually in 395 AD, Theodosius, the Christian emperor, outlawed all our other forms of religion. So only Christianity was legal at that point. Um, there were still people resisting and not following that law, but it was really at that point uh, the death knell had been uh, sent. Richard, Christians today are going to think that it was the Holy Spirit, it was the power of God that <laughs> progressed that religion from whatever it started out to be to what it is now, and that to even bring up something like political power empowering a religion is kind of besides the point and not even a great big detail. It's just kind of a footnote in history. Why was that significant in Christianity's existence, especially on to today? Yeah, you can even look at uh, Christian scholars like Rodney Stark, a sociologist who's analyzed what data we have on the growth of Christianity. And its growth rate was identical to all other religions. You can look at Mormonism and other uh, faith group, faith movement growth. Uh, so its 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 growth was not miraculous. It was just like every other new fashionable religion, and it had many competitors that were growing at the same pace. Uh, and they're competing in the marketplace ideas uh, for uh, ownership for people to join. And it wasn't literally. You could look at the historical record. The Christians were not a majority. They were just one of many sects. Uh, and grew in size at the same about 4%, I think every 10 years or something like that. It's the same rate uh, that we see for other religions. And it wasn't until the government put its stamp of authority on it and started funneling huge amounts of money towards it uh, and put legal defenses behind it and, and made it uh, access to power, made it uh, attractive for that reason and so on. That's the only time when it started to explode and take over and basically become the majority religion. And eventually, of course, they outright outlawed opposing religions. So uh, that's on the historical record. That's a fact. So we know those decisions were decisive in making the, the Western world Christian. So if we look back right now, and we look at the growth rates, which you just explained the rates, and we want to decide what makes more sense here, the fact that human intervention made this thing what it was or what it became. Mm -hmm. um, or if this was somehow supernatural, which means giving to it power and resources, which wouldn't otherwise have explanatory power for its growth, we would find that indeed it is no different than other religions at the time similar to it. And only at the advent of political power investing in it, yeah. the, the meaning which it 
had once that happened, did it become something that we've inherited today? That's what we would find. Yeah, exactly.